chapter 2 is Joshua sending the spies into the land. Now notice, here's where you see the beginning of that theme of unity. Joshua doesn't actually send his people into the promised land to spy it out or do anything until the unity of the tribes is confirmed. It is not until those other three tribes promise and swear we will stay unified and united with you that Joshua then turns and faces the promised land and says, we're ready to go now. And that's really important. It's really hard to go out and build the kingdom of God and expand the garden when you are not unified with the people that are joining you. And the Bible makes it very clear in the Second Testament that our first and primary responsibility is loyalty, love, and unity with the people in the church before we ever show love to the world. Because if we can't be unified, then how in the world will we successfully expand this garden? Now, obviously, it's probably not really possible at all to be completely unified as the church in the entire world because we're too sinful. (laughs) But at least that particular team that you're working on. It's very important if you go do any kind of ministry or any type of expansion that you work on unity before you go out anywhere or at least be pretty close to that because obviously doing work together will unify you even more but there, you've, got to, you've got to deal with problems between you. You've got to deal with your vision, your commitment, your plans, your purposes before you can really go out and accomplish something. And I've been part of groups that are unified and part of groups that are not, and it makes a huge difference. And so Joshua does not turn to face this land of promise until he's assured that they're unified. And that's really important. Chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, the first thing we're told is that they leave the place of Shittim. Now, that, if you've been reading and paying attention to the Bible, which I know we, you go through lots of names as you read, these names are important because here's the thing. The first time we see Shittim in the Bible is this is where the Israelites prostituted themselves, the Moabite prostitutes. So at the very end of Numbers, Balaam is hired by Balak, the Moabite king. The Moabite king Balak hires Balaam and says, I want you to curse Israel. I can't stop them militarily because they've defeated Sihon and Og and we're, we're nothing compared to Sihon and Og. I want you to consult the gods, conjure up a curse, and get the spiritual gods to attack Israel and destroy them. If I, as a human, cannot stop them militarily, then we can get the gods to defeat their god and defeat them. So he hires Balaam. And Balaam is a magician. Now I mentioned this in the book of Numbers, but Balaam is a magician that is so respected, so renowned, and so powerful that he shows up a lot outside of the Bible and other writings in the ancient world. 
This is like getting Michael Jordan to get on your basketball team for your intramurals. Everybody's going to know it, and everybody's going to be wowed that you have him, and they're probably going to just not play against you. Okay, they might play just because they want to say they play with Michael Jordan and leave out the, against him. But um, that's when, the, when you're an Israelite reading this for the first time, you were like, I know who he is. He is the most powerful, and he fails because Yahweh is far superior to any other God out there. And so he fails miserably seven times. And he ends up blessing Israel instead. But then Balaam turns around the Moabites and says, look, you can't stop them militarily because their God is more powerful. You can't stop them spiritually and demonically because their God is more powerful. But one thing that God will never protect them from is their own desire to sin. If you tempt them with the female prostitutes, they'll, they'll, they'll go. And so, now remember, these aren't just prostitutes. These are holy prostitutes. Now, if you weren't here for numbers, that seems like, what? That's a total contradiction. In the ancient world, the way that the pagans worshipped the gods was through sex. Instead of going to church and having a worship service, they would go to their temples and sacrifice animals and grain and then have sex with the priest. And that sex would turn on the gods and the gods would then bless them in return. The reality is... This is what these Moabite prostitutes are. And so Balaam and Balak send them into them. And the last generation, the last people left over from the previous generation fall into hook, line, and sinker. And they worship the god Baal, who will become somewhat prominent in Gideon's story and very prominent in Samuel and Kings, through sex with these prostitutes. And that happened here. And the narrator doesn't always mention where Israel is located all the time. But he intentionally mentions that because he wants you to see the contrast between the last time the generation was here, they failed miserably. And now this new generation is here and they faithfully go into the land. And not only are they going to go to the land, they're going to encounter another prostitute. But this time there's going to be a conversion rather than a yoking themselves with an idol. And that's important here because Rahab is an undoing or reversal of the Moabite prostitute scene. And it's able to be undone and reversed because of the faith of the Israelites and the faith of Rahab. And that's what undoes these patterns. That's what breaks the cycle. That's what redeems cities and locations. And then second... This is also the place that the spies were sent in the promised land and came back and said, we can't take the land. And now this time the spies are going to go in the land and come back and say, it's just as God said, but we can defeat them. And oh, by the way, there's this woman converted. Let's go. And so here's the thing. This city that seems like, oh, just another city that I can't pronounce and I don't remember anywhere else. And it's just geography is incredibly important because the faithfulness of Joshua's generation is going to redeem the city. Where two major sins happened, this faithful generation is going to redeem that city. And it's going to become, spiritually speaking, the first conquest. Which means conquest is not just about military. It's also about redeeming the sins that we've committed in the past. And they spy out the land. And they come to a prostitute. Now, it's very important to understand that they don't sleep with a prostitute. They come to the house of a prostitute. She's a woman. 
She's a prostitute and she's a Canaanite. Three strikes against her. I don't personally believe in the woman one being a strike against her. But in that culture at that time period, that would have been a strike against her. She is considered one of the most insignificant people in the culture because she's not a holy prostitute that would have been revered. She's the kind of prostitute that is not revered. And she's a woman and she's a Canaanite. You don't get any more lowly than that in the world's eyes. And yet it's this very woman who's considered one of the most insignificant people in the culture that's going to be the only person, really, who's going to put her faith in God. And God is going to redeem her. And he's not only going to redeem her, he's going to use her in a powerful way because she's going to become the grandmother of Boaz, who's going to become one of the most faithful people in Israel who redeem another foreigner of Ruth and an Israelite, Naomi, and make it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so what seems like a very insignificant person is actually going to become incredibly instrumental in to continue the line of Christ and the redemption of all of us. And that's what Ruth... And right now she's just a woman who is depressed, miserable, wanting to escape a corrupt, evil culture, sees an opportunity to get out, and is really hoping this Yahweh has everything that she's learned about and has no idea what God's going to do with her. She just wants to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's where her journey begins. I just want to be a part of what God is doing. And that's all she needs. Now, they don't have sex because it's very interesting because they make the authors go out of their way to make sure because this word to enter into is a euphemism for sex. Like when Cain entered into his wife and Adam entered into his wife. But the author goes out of his way and makes it very clear that they entered into her house. And by emphasizing that, they're making it very clear that there's not a sexual act here. The next question that we would have is, why in the world do they end up in the house of a prostitute? Aren't they spies seeking out military-like things? Well, here's the thing. It's not really the house of a prostitute. It's more of a brothel. And remember, in the ancient world, and even if you've seen Old West movies, brothels and saloons... And the social life all tend to come together. If you've ever seen, you really see this a lot in World War movie, World War II movies, like from the 50s, 60s and 70s, like where Eagles Dare and the Guns of Navarone and all this kind of stuff. Whenever they send American spies over into Germany, they always end up in a brothel. Why? Because that's where all the really powerful leaders of countries go, and we've know our presidents throughout the years well enough to know that they end up there a lot <laughs> and that's where all the information is where a bunch of people are gathering together for sex and alcohol and entertainment lips get very loose and a lot of information spreads quickly and when people travel like traders the first place that a trader wants to go is to the brothel and even if they're not there for sex that's just where all the hotels are there is no such thing as a hotel without a brothel. So thank God for holiday ends, okay? <laughs> Family friendly. Um, the reality is, so that's where you go. So the traders go because they don't have a home. The only place to stay is in the brothel, and then they share all the news that they've learned about, and they hear all the news so they can make it to the book. So it's, a, it's an exchange of information. So if you want to know what's going on, that's the place to go to overhear generals and kings talking and traders talking. And you can learn a lot more sitting there than trying to travel miles upon miles upon miles as two people throughout an entire land. Now what's interesting though is 
Nothing in the story is about them getting that information either. The whole story is about Rahab. And in fact, not only is the whole time that they're in the land spying dominated with Rahab, but she even dominates the conversation. If you realize that the spies are the chosen people of God and they're going into the land to get information and come back out to help their military, but when the king comes looking for the spies, she's the one that dominates the conversation. And when the spies and her are talking, she's the one that dominates the conversation. And not in a like, wow, she really talked too much tonight. Not that kind of a sense, but in a confidence, I know what's going on and I want to be a part of this kind of a sense. She is the active person, not the spies. And the narrator is doing this to show you that she knows exactly who Yahweh is, who these people are, what's going on, and she knows exactly what she wants to be a part of it. And that's faith. This is a woman who's like, oh, who are you guys again? Oh, that sounds really cool. She keeps saying, we know, we know, I know, I've seen, I've heard. She's been researching this for a long time, so to speak. And she knows exactly what's going on, who they are, what they represent, and she's saying, I want to be a part of it. And her dominating the situation is her act of faith of becoming a part of the people of God. And that's important for you to see. This isn't a woman who just is like wanting to escape a burning ship. Like, oh, there's a great superior army coming. I want to be a part of it. This is a woman who's already figured everything out before they've even showed up and says, I want to be a part of it. And in fact, she's the one that controls the negotiations. She's like, you promised to me I will be saved. You pro-. And she's like holding them to the carpet, so to speak. You better do this. And that's not why they were there. That's not why they were there. They had no idea. And so this is what we're going to see. So verse 2, She, as they enter, and the king of Jericho told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. Now obviously, not only are they there to get a lot of information, but all the information about them being there has traveled to the king very quickly. If you're watching a World War II like spy movie, you're like on the edge of your seat right now because they're about ready to get caught as the Nazi party enters the brothel, having their pictures in hand. But remember, God promised to give the Canaanites into their hand. We've come tonight to spy. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But, in contrast to being faithful to the king, She's going to be faithful to the true and ultimate sovereign king. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk that it was time to close the city gate. The men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them under, up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of the flak that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out and pursued the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, the gate is shut is like, dun-dun-dun-dun, because there's no getting in or out. So the spies have actually stayed there too long, and now they're trapped for the rest of the night. But at the same time, she's led them away and misdirected them. Now, some people struggle with this, because they're, wow, Rahab's first act of faith is a lying and deceiving that's not real faithful, but really. 
How many of you cleaned up your lives before you accepted Christ? (laughs) Nowhere in the Bible do you see an expectation for sin to be eliminated before you enter the kingdom of God and faith in God. That's exactly what God does after you enter. God looks at the heart. And yes, her actions are not completely godly and good, but her desire to be a part of God does. Now, here's the other thing. What do you expect from her? She's a Canaanite. And later we're going to talk about what the Canaanite culture is like. And once you learn what the Canaanite culture is like, it's going to, you're going to realize it's absolutely amazing that she even had this kind of a faith. She came with what she had. And her understanding of righteousness hasn't been shaped by God yet. Her understanding of morality has not been shaped by God yet. Because she hasn't entered into God's presence yet. But what she has seen is that the righteousness and the character and the faithfulness of God is way better than the world and the culture that has shaped her. And she wants to leave her culture and enter that new one. And she may not exactly know what the new culture is going to expect of her, but she knows that she wants to be a part of it and it's going to be better than what she's been in. If she's been a believer for 20-something years and still lying deceivingly, that's a different story. Just like I'm going to be a lot more patient with my 4-year-olds as they sin than I am going to be with my 18-year-old when they're absolutely rebelling against me. And so the reality is, don't look at the lying deceiving. That's what it looks like for a person to be a part of the world. What you need to look at is that there's a desire to not be in that world anymore. And she may not know exactly what the new world is like, but she knows it's way better than what she's been a part of with a way better God, and she wants to escape this and go to that. And that's all that God cares about. And the same thing you see with Tamar. Tamar slept with her father-in-law to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And Judah called her more righteous than him. And you're like, that's righteous? It is, because he took the Abrahamic covenant for granted, didn't do anything to really be a part of it, refused to continue the line of Abraham on, and yet she's doing everything she can to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And she might have been doing it the wrong way, but she was a Canaanite, and she didn't know any other way. But her heart and her desire was to be a part of it. And we need to remember this. We need to remember where people are coming from in the world. And we need to know what, who has been their teacher. And we need to know what has been their habitual patterns. And rather than looking at their actions, we need to look at their heart desire. And even the baby new Christians, we need to look at where they've been. And some people are going to take longer to be redeemed than others because some people have had darker, more entrenched pasts than others. And we need to look at people where they are, where they've come from, and what God is doing in their life as we come along their side and encourage them, rather than what we think that they should be and what is expected of them. It's often much better to ask God what he's doing in their life before we enter in and start holding them accountable things than what we think they should be. And so don't look at the lying. And don't look at that. The mark of her faith was she did what she knew with her background to be a part of this world. And God can deal. See, a person who is in the faith living a righteous, moral life, yet has no desire to really know God, you can't really do much with that. But a person who has a lot of problems and a lot of vices, but has a heart that deeply desires God, God can do unlimited things with that. And that's the whole story of David. 
Look, David is an absolute scumbag. He is not a great man at all. And you would never let him into the same country as your daughter when it comes to dating. Yet he's called a man after God's own heart. Because he wanted to be a part of God. And that's what you need to understand here. Don't look at the line. Don't look at the actions now before she's come to know God. Look at the heart that is desperately willing to do anything to be part of that. And that's who Rahab is. And this is her faith. And this is what makes her an incredible woman of faith. An incredible example of what it means to be a godly woman. So she hides him. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down, lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given this land to you and that with great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. I know it. The previous generation of Israelites did not say that once. They're like, oh, we can't take this land. There's giants there. There's fortresses there. God only brought us here to kill us. She has not seen those miracles. She did not see the Red Sea crossing. She did not see the Passover meal. She did not see the ten plagues. She did not see the miracles of God. She did not see the provisions of God. All she has seen is the smoke of burning cities on the horizon and heard the stories. And she says, I know that God is going to give this to you. Kind of reminds me when Jesus says, Blessed are those who believe and have not even seen me. And she says, I know this. And not just that, everybody knows it. Everybody in Jericho and the land know it, and they're melting with fear. They've been watching these cities burn one by one, and they're looking over the valley, and they see smoke. And they're being filled with fear. They're melting with fear. If you translate that into the modern-day English, that's they're peeing their pants. Okay, <laughs> They are just absolutely afraid. But here's what's interesting. They don't respond in faith. They see the power of God, the faithfulness of God to his promises, and they see what's happening. They heard the stories, and they're going to stay in their lifestyles. She sees all this, and she says, I want to be a part of it. Same thing. The previous generation saw the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, all the miracles of God, and they didn't respond in faith. The next generation didn't see all that. They only heard the stories, and they responded in faith. It doesn't matter whether God does more miracles in America or not. It doesn't matter if he does more wondrous things enough. All that matters is the kind of person who hears the stories and responds. It's never, why don't you do this anymore, God? It's always, why isn't their heart in the right place? And the reality is that's enough for her, the stories. Verse 10, we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you have completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and earth below. We heard of how you, what your God did in Egypt. How long ago was that? Forty years. Forty years ago. In a pre-Google like Internet YouTube videos, I was standing there at the right time to record a time here. It is like the Pony Express information. 
in World War II was much longer than 40 years ago. And there were some pretty amazing epic battles that America pulled off. And we did some pretty incredible impossible things, defeating an incredible military force of the Germans and the Russians, and even the Japanese. Yet how many people today are still talking about those things? Yet 40 years later, in a non-informational society that is not at their fingertips at any moment in their iPhone, this entire land of Canaan is still talking about what God did in Egypt, and they're still trembling in fear over it. That shows you how epic. Not that it was hard for God, but it was amazing. The Red Sea crossing was. We don't talk about things like that. Old news is yesterday. But they're still talking about this in, Israel, in Canaan. And they're still in fear. And when they saw Sihon and Og go down, it just revitalized that fear big time. <laughs> Because now it's not the Red Sea 40 years ago, hundreds of miles ago. Now it's right here on their doorstep. And that shows you that the Red Sea was a, and the Ten Plagues of Egypt was a whole lot more than just defeating Egypt and delivering his people. It was about getting the word of who God was as his character and God out into the world. And this is why even Moses said, all the people will know who you are through this moment. And they're talking about that. And she's melting in fear. Then she says, your God is the God of the sky and the land. Now this is a mirrorism. A mirrorism is a way of saying two things referred to the whole. Like, I am the alpha, the first letter of the alphabet, and the omega, the last. And I'm using that to refer to all the other letters in the alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. And then that assumes a mirrorism, everything in between. When I say that's nothing but nuts and bolts... Well, no, the projector is a lot more than nuts and bolts, but it's a mirrorism to say nuts and bolts refer to the whole thing. I'm nothing but flesh and blood. Well, you're a whole lot more than flesh and blood, or you'd just be this ooze on the floor. But it's two things refer to the whole. These are mirrorisms. So the original Hebrew, the Hebrew word shemayim can be translated heaven where God dwells or sky. And you only know that by context. And here's mostly sky, meaning the sky and the land and everything between. Why is this incredible statement of faith? Because in every other pagan mythology account, a god created the sun. A different god created the sky. A different god created the land. A different god created the crops. A different god created humans. A different god created animals. And so all you could ever say is Ra is the god of the sun. Baal is the god of the storm. Zeus is the god of the storm. Hades is the god of the underworld. That's all you can ever say. But when people come along and say that your God is the God of the sky and the land and everything in between, there is no other God in all of creation that claims that other than Yahweh. And that's why it's so significant that every single day of the week that it says God said, God said, God said. Because that's a unique thing. And so she's professing an ultimate faith. And she would have never learned that anywhere else. This isn't like, oh, I just, there's other religions. There is no other religion like that. And the only place she would ever learn this is from these stories. And so this is an ultimate declaration of faith that nobody else really would say is, your, your God is a God of everything. 
And you need to pay attention to that. The people, like when Jonah is completely disobeying God and he's trying to run away from God and he's going on the sea, you're like, you know your God is the God of everything. Why are you trying to run on the sea? Then the pagan, horrible sailors, who were like, you know, sailors, they're like, Jonah is like, my God is the God of the sky and the earth. And they're like, oh my goodness. And they immediately recognize him, bow down and worship. Meanwhile, the prophet of God can't even get that. And you'll see those phrases. Ruth will say the same thing. You need to pay attention to that mirrorism because that's an absolute unique statement in the ancient world. And that means that she gets, she's not switching allegiance to another god, the new flavor of the month. She gets that this god is absolutely different than any other god. And that's a huge confession of faith. And that's a huge confession of theology from a simple woman who lives in a brothel. And yet she gets it better than the previous generation that was educated through the miracles of God and the actual law and the words that came from Moses from Mount Sinai. This is her faith. This is her understanding. Verse 12. Then please swear to me, swear an oath by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all belong to them, and that you will save from death. The same God that saved you from death in Egypt promised me that you will save me from the death of this. This is a real example of a woman of faith. This is an incredible model. Her theological understanding, her trust in God, her her unhesitating commitment and action, the unknown that she's jumping into. And remember in the ancient world and in the Eastern world today, to walk away from your gods means to lose your family too. In America, people change religions like they change clothes. But in the Eastern world, your religion is a part of your culture. It's everything, your music, your government, your family, your culture, generations. And when you convert from another religion like Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism or something like that, you're leaving the gods. And if you're leaving the gods, like, my goodness, you're leaving everything else. And you will lose most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time you will lose all connection to your family, your culture, everything. You lose everything. In America, most of the time, yeah, your dad may not respect you anymore because he's an atheist or he thinks that's a little weird, but you're still going to have family reunions. And as long as you don't talk about politics and religion, you're going to have a great time most of the time. But not in, not in the East and not in the ancient world. And so she, this is probably one of the reasons she's like, my family has the same faith. Take us too. But remember in the ancient and Eastern world, families are bigger than just mom and dad and kids. They're not all going. And she's going to a completely different country. Yeah, she's technically not leaving the country, but when they come in, it will be a completely different country. And it will be foreign. This is a huge step of faith. So she says, show me kindness. Now, here's the thing. That word comes from a Hebrew word, chesed. You've got to get a ch in there. Chesed. Chesed means loving kindness. It is a word that communicates the idea of demonstrating love and kindness to people who don't deserve it, to people who will never maybe show it back to you, and a kindness that goes over and beyond just normal taboo expectations. This word appears over 270-something times in the First Testament. 
that idea, this is the word where we kind of get the word agape, which actually we often understand agape as unconditional love, but agape also has more of the idea of charity because charity is a more action word. Agape is a abstract theological concept. Charity is more action and practical in real life. And charity is the idea of you're going to people who will never, may never love you in return, will never be able to financially give anything back to you because that's why it's called charity, and yet you do it anyways. And that's kind of the word here. This is the word used all throughout the book of Ruth. Why have you shown me chesed? Okay, over and over again, Ruth is asking that question. I'm a foreigner. I'm a scum. You don't like me. Why? You never, ever, ever, ever find that concept of a word anywhere outside the Bible in the ancient world. The pagan gods are so immoral, so selfish, and you always will, you will never become greater than the thing you worship. So people act like that too, because you can never rise above the thing that you worship. If you're bowing down and submitting to something, you can't become greater than that. So if all your gods are selfish, cruel pigs, then you will never become more than that unless God reaches in your life because that's what you worship. You never find that concept outside the Bible. The first thing that makes Yahweh absolutely unique to everything else is that he's the only God that's absolutely sovereign over all things. And the other thing is that he is the only God that shows a loving kindness when you don't deserve it and even pursues you to the ends of the earth and the filth of your sin to redeem you back. And you will never, ever, ever, ever find a God, a being, or a human that is both of those simultaneously. It does not. Allah is all-powerful, but he doesn't care about you. The Hindu gods are all-powerful. Well, they're technically just a force, but that kind of makes them powerful. But they don't care about you. Zeus and Athena and all them, they care about you in the wrong ways, but it's not a good, loving, redeeming kind of a caring about you, and they're not all-powerful. And she gets that. Knows that she's confessed both the things. Your God is the God of sky and land, all sovereign. And you, I actually expect chesed from you. And where in the world would I have learned that concept? Not from my culture. That's a word that she's imported from their culture. Absolute love, despite sin. She gets that God will accept her. There's a fear that maybe he won't, but everybody has that. But the fact that she's going through all this says that despite that, she knows it will happen. And this makes Ruth's confession complete. Because she's acknowledged the absolute uniqueness of God. Sovereign and transcendent over all things, yet intimately and chesed agape loving involved in creation. And she makes them promise, save us. Save us. Give me a guarantee. 14. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell, now this is the first time they actually talk. We're like halfway through the chapter and they finally begin to talk. And they say, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully, Hesed, when Yahweh gives us the land. Now notice they show their faith too. God is going to give us this land. And the same way that God has been faithful to us, We'll be faithful to you as long as you show faithfulness to us. 
So God says, I'll be faithful to you if you show faithfulness. And they say, well, I'll be faithful to you if you show... There's the, the exchange of faithfulness. You can't have a relationship with mutual, without mutual trust and faithfulness. And so they, they say, save us, protect us. Where she's going to save them physically, the Abrahamic covenant is going to save her spiritually and eternally. So she led them down by a rope through the window for the house she, she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until you return and then go your way. So she tells them where to go. Now she goes back to dominating the conversation. Go, this is what you're supposed to do. 